How are we doing today? Totally convincing. That's it. That's what I'm looking for. So, I'm excited to be here. I love that I get the opportunity to bring God's Word. You know, the last couple times I've been preaching here at the church, I've been doing my master's degree, and that's now done. Uh, And so now I felt like this... uh, Thank you. I appreciate that. You guys are so much nicer than the first service. I said that, and it was just silent. I'm like, oh, man. Worked really hard at that. Uh, But but that's done now. So one of the reasons I, I tell you that is... I got to read the Word this week, and it didn't feel like it was jammed in. It felt like I got a little, a little elbow room. And that com- combined with some of the songs we were singing. And I, uh, woo! I'm excited to be here today. I'm excited to preach. I feel like this is the first time it's like, you know, shake the dust off a little bit, and I get to spread my wings a little bit. Plus, thanks, man. Plus, you know, Deckard's gone, so while the cat's away, the mouse will play. Um, let's pray real fast, then we'll get into the, we'll get into the text. Father, we acknowledge as we come to the Ten Commandments, we come to that which is challenging, that which is encouraging. Father, we see in the commandments that you give us that no one measures up. And so in a very real sense, it draws us out of ourselves to see that we need a Savior. But in us being drawn out, God, you are there to draw us right back in. You've made a way, and you've made that way through Jesus Christ. And as we focus and we see and we, and we study, God, may you make much of your son as we do that, Father. May your gospel uh, be preached. And, Father, I pray that hearts will be encouraged and lives will change as a result of the good news, as a result of the gospel. Father, thank you that you've given us this word. Thank you that we get to be a church that gathers around when so many churches don't get the opportunity to do this. We do. We take it as a great blessing, a great gift from you. And so, Father, may it honor and glorify you now in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So, how many when you woke up today thought, man, I cannot wait to go to church and hear a sermon on the Ten Commandments? It's not often that that's the case. Matter of fact, and I saw a couple people coming in first service, um, maybe a little bit tired, maybe, maybe feeling a little bit cold. People were like way overdressed. Uh, for the cold, I was like, it's not, I mean, we're not there yet, are we? Like winter parkas and all this kind of stuff. Anyways, I saw them, and, and if I would have seen them in the parking lot and said, hey, it's Ten Commandments Day, I, it's like, uh, I'm turning back around. I'm turning back around. Because sometimes what, what, what happens when we talk about the Ten Commandments is we've heard it so many times, right? We've heard it, and mostly what we've heard about the Ten Commandments are there's these rules, and these rules are like super hard to follow, you're never going to follow them, and it's like super discouraging. <laughs> or... You talked about them kind of flippantly in uh, Sunday school. You'd bring them up as a Sunday school lesson. You would talk about the commandments, uh, but there wasn't maybe a real fear or reverence. Uh, It was, these are the Ten Commandments, and there were stone tablets, and make a construction paper stone tablet. You maybe have done something like that. So, you know, a lot of times we come to uh, the Ten Commandments, and it's it's a struggle for us um, to see exactly where to go. I'm I'm not going to lie to you. I heard three people afterwards. They said, hey, thanks for your message. I was bumming. I was bumming that we were talking about that today. I'm not bummed. I'm like super excited to be talking about this today as, I, as I'm reading through the book of Exodus and I've been able to see some of the passages that talk about the law and God's law and why it's there. I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about it today. But so what I want to do in our time today is I want to examine the commandments and I want to do it from two different ways. One, I want 
I want to show you that in God's commandment to the Israelite people, what he was doing was drawing them out of their slavery from Egypt and then reorienting them around a new ethical way of living. Now, understand me. I'm going to get to Jesus. I will absolutely get there. But what I, what I think is important to understand is that there is a way in which the law, if it had been taken in faith, would have produced some of the natural outpouring of what God intended. So, the law as you see it, these Israelites aren't going to keep it. It's no secret. All you have to do is read like three or four chapters and realize most everything God commands and they say that they're going to follow, they don't. Okay? So what's supposed to happen is not that they were supposed to follow it moralistically or externally, hitting every letter of the law. What was supposed to happen is they were supposed to hear in faith that the God who has delivered them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, in a pillar, by cloud, quail all over the place, manna all over the place, uh, water from rocks, that same God who gives you the law is the same God who will preserve you. But in the New Testament, it says what, what, pro, what the problem the Israelites had and what made, it pro, what made it problematic for them is that they did not approach it in that manner. The book of Romans says they approached it as if it was by works. They thought, if I just obey the law, I'll be okay, which is totally not why the law was given. So I'm going to get there. But I also want to talk about, because I think there are some, uh, some profound takeaways from God's law, when we compare it to where they're coming from. So now think for a second. We've been a country, uh, no one got this right in first service for how many years? Can anybody tell me? 240, yes, 241. We have a patriot amongst our myths. No, not very good. 241 years. Now, uh, imagine during that time frame that we kept all, everything that made us distinctly Americans, right? We've grown in that in time. And that's to be expected. As you take on a new culture and as you come to a new place and as time passes, you become more like that place. Is that not right? So are we English still? We're not. I probably, I would go over there. And if I went over there, I'm like, ah, I'm English. They're like, no, you're not. You're American. You've been, like, what's going on here? So in a very real sense, I want you to, if, if that's a helpful analogy, and all analogies break down at some point, to think that these Israelites have been enslaved in a pagan nation. Okay? They've been enslaved in a pagan nation, and they've lived as pagans in that nation. So as they're coming out, in a very real sense, God is drawing them out of what the cultural has told them that they are, and he is now having to give them a new ethical guideline. Now, doesn't mean that that ethical guideline is what's going to save them. It just means that there are some implications for how they live. They should be different. Okay, So there is a very real sense in which they are drawn out so that God can draw them in. He had to take them from their context. But do they just automatically drop off everything that made them that way? You know, this is National Adoption Month. And given that it's National Adoption Month, think about uh, you take somebody who's maybe eight years old who's lived in a different context. And let's just say that context was abusive. And all of a sudden, you adopt this person into your household. You drop them into your household, and you just say, uh, thrive and flourish. We know that that probably wouldn't happen. Why? Because they lived in a different family. And the way they defined themselves and the way they thought about themselves and the way they operated was influenced by that culture, by the identity as a family. And so now when they're called out of that into a new family, what does the new family have to do? Structure, guidelines, routines. Here's what we do. Here's what we don't do. And why? Not so that you're miserable, but so that we live peacefully together because I love you and I want you to love me back. Doesn't that make sense? 
So in a very real sense, this is, this is sort of what the first part I want to say about the commandments is that they are drawing the Israelites out and now going to give them this new sort of ethic. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you, um, go to the fourth slide. We'll be good. The path, it's the past, the life, the kingdom comparisons. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to compare and contrast Pharaoh's kingdom. And when I say Pharaoh's kingdom, I want you to hear unchecked human desire. So in Pharaoh's kingdom, as we compare and contrast Pharaoh's kingdom, what the Israelites came out of, and into God's commandments, there is a difference. And so I look at it and say God's kingdom versus Pharaoh's kingdom. But you can read very, uh, you can read between the lines there that every time I say Pharaoh's kingdom, what I mean to say is unchecked human desire. Human desire, when it's unchecked, manifests in these things. And so you can see uh, why uh, a law of God is important. The first one, in Pharaoh's kingdom, I am God. I rule and reign, and people do what I say. So Pharaoh, in a very real sense, said he was God. And because I'm God, I can manipulate, I can coerce, I can, I can extrapolate power in ever, whatever way I want, in whichever fashion I want, and I can exploit it. I can do that. But in God's commandment, it says, you shall no other gods before me. God's to be desired above all things. God's authority prevents anyone else from claiming ultimate authority. So as God's reshaping these people, he's reshaping them around the sense that God is to be central in their desires. God is to be central above what they are to go after. This was a uh, society in which there were uh, 60 known gods, at least. 60 known gods in Egypt, many of them worshipped by the Israelites. In fact, a couple chapters from now, they're going to be rubbing on a golden calf. Okay, so the idolatry of the heart was not far from them. Even though they were a chosen nation, there was this very real sense in that they had a pattern learned by culture. Pattern learned by culture. Maybe I'm saying that for a reason. I don't know. We'll see. The second, in Pharaoh's kingdom, the gods served uh, human purposes. The God I worship is that which I choose and that which benefits me the most. But in God's commandment, we see that that's not the way it should be. We see you shall not make uh, for yourself a carved image, that nothing takes the place of God. In commandment three, you should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. God's image cannot be used for personal gain. So what we see is that Pharaoh used and manipulated the gods however he wanted. And, and so did the people who worshipped. If, if you needed uh, rain, there was a certain God for the rain. And if you needed the river to produce something, then there's a certain river God. And if you needed something, then you, you had any one that you could choose at any time and put it up on the shelf. What God is saying is, no shelf gods. And the reason no shelf gods is, you can't copy my image. You can't co-opt my image into anything that serves your purposes because I am first and foremost. And we know in our own hearts how easy it is to put something before God, don't we? How easy it is to take something that's even good, even something that we have a desire for, and place it and have a higher affection for that than we do for God. I mean, I can do that with my family. I can actually put my family in a place where it shouldn't be. I can put my family before the Lord. And it's not, it's not wrong to be a good dad. It's not wrong to be a, a husband. But if that's where I'm getting my ultimate identity and my satisfaction from because everyone looks on the outside and says, what a good dad and husband, I'm not rooted and, 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 and solely in 
God's desire, right? That's not what I'm desiring most. I'm desiring that fatherhood or parenting uh, uh, defines who I am. Does that make sense? Pharaoh's kingdom or unchecked human desire, the vulnerable are exploited and production never ceases. If you think back to uh, early in the book of Exodus, what, what do we find out about the Israelites? We find out that every time uh, the, the, the rest was taken away, straw was taken away, everything with food was taken away, supplies were taken away, but what was never taken away was the burden to produce. There was always production, always production, always consumption, always consumption. And so what God says in his commandment is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. See, the Sabbath sets limits on production. And it allows rest for everyone, including the most vulnerable and exploited. Now, one of the things that I found really interesting in my study is how much detail there is in this particular portion. So let's read it again. And you will find it starting in verse 8, and we'll read it. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do uh, any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Why do we think that God needed to prescribe for us who needed to rest? Well, my thought is, you know, if there's a new people being called out and God just says, hey, remember, rest, the Israelites, the people who were now in a position of power would have said, yes, God, we'll do that. But my slaves, oh, no, 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 they're not resting. My livestock, that's how I eat. I can't have my, li- my livestock rest. That doesn't work. How does that work? I can't, I can't, not everything can rest. So my thought is that when God is prescribing this holistic rest for everyone, son, daughter, servants, animals, what that means for me, or what I think it is for us, is really a resounding bell going off. Because in our culture, right now, production never ends. Consumption never ends. And there are people that are working themselves to the bone day in and day out, taking on more because they're defined by what they produce and not who they are. They're defined by if I just work a little bit harder and if I just take on this side job and if I just do a little bit over here and I just do this, then ultimately I will have a worth. But what God says is the only worth you need to be concerned about is the worth that comes from resting in me. So a Sabbath is exceedingly important. And I think in some cases, uh, they absolutely needed to do this. This is slave mentality. They were coming from slavery. They were coming from genocide. They were coming from hard labor. And so in the very same way, they might have, they might have thought that's, that's how you do it. In our life, I can see parallels. I, I have friends and I have family that never stop. Their wheels never stop turning. They work Monday through Friday. As soon as they get home, it's work. And on Saturday, well, that's a work day. And on Sunday, there's some more work. And then you start again on Monday. But when do you ever get a chance to take a step back? When do you ever get a chance to say, it's not from the toil of my brow or the work of my hands that I've made this for myself, but it's the work and the grace of God. The Sabbath is important. We're zealous to produce as a way to show we have value and worth. That's the only, that can only really come from rest. So back to Pharaoh's kingdom. 
Family life is subject to destruction. There's rebellion of authority and a pursuit of what the eye desires. So we know that there was genocide in Egypt. We know that the family life was destroyed. We know that there was a pursuit of whatever the eyes desired. And so God gives these commandments. Number five, honor your father and your mother. That means honor and respect for authority is expected. And the seventh is you shall not commit adultery. There will be integrity in the marriage relationship. So you can see how God's reforming, right? He's reforming. He's reorienting. Another one. Pharaoh's kingdom, the lack of respect for human life leads to violence. This is especially true for the vulnerable and the weak. Those who were slaves were put to hard labor. When they died, did anybody blink an eye? And who could, who could create an edict that said every child to and under gets to die? There's little regard for human life, especially for those who are vulnerable and weak. And now, God's commandment says you shall not commit murder, but I wonder, does this remind us of anything? Is there anything in our world that's going on right now? Do we see places in which the powerful exert strength over the weak? Maybe something like abortion. Maybe something where it says, I don't regard that human life, and because I don't, I don't care about being violent and ending that life. It's vulnerable, it's weak. God's commandment says you should not commit murder. In Pharaoh's kingdom, greed and envy lead to disregard and mistreatment of others. God's commandment says you shall not steal, so your possessions are respected. They're not taken from you, uh, not taken from the weak and provided to the powerful. And then you shall not covet. There's a satisfaction of what's been provided. So you see again and again, there's this everything that, that you can see these kingdoms stand so far. They're, they're, they're so apart, far apart from each other. And the last one. In Pharaoh's kingdom, lying and manipulating to get ahead are accepted practices. But in God's commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Uh, there shall be integrity and partiality in relationships and conflict. And I mean, you can, you don't have to look very far to see how the weak and the vulnerable are oppressed in this world. How the powerful exert, either lie or manipulate or coerce or bring a false witness or whatever they have to do in order to get what they want. And in God's kingdom, that's not the way it should be. You should not bear false witness against your neighbor. There's one more thing I want you to see before I leave the compare the comparisons and go to the New Testament. I want you to see something starting in uh, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now, if you were to go back into chapter 19, you'll see what had happened is that God had called Moses up to the mountain. He said on the mountain, what I'd like to do is I'd like to covenant with these people. I want to covenant with them. And so what I need them to do is I need you all to go and I need you all to wash. And once you wash, three days later, you're going to hear this trumpet sound. When you hear the trumpet sound, I want you to come to the base of the mountain and I'm going to talk with you. So that's what happens. There's this huge 
trumpet sound. This is the context of which these commandments were given, by the way. So I think it's important sometimes to get ourselves in there. But think about this. You've washed, you've got these consecrated clothes on, and all of a sudden comes trumpet blasts. Trumpet blasts that says that they heard them and they trembled. That's how loud they were. And so all of a sudden they get closer to this mountain. And as they get closer to the mountain, they say, wait, that mountain's on fire. Chapter 19 says the, the mountain is on fire, and it was as the smoke was coming out of a kiln. So not only is it on fire, there's thunder. Thunder is going everywhere. So you've got trumpet, you've got thunder, you've got fire, and the whole ground is trembling. So where you are standing, it's shaking. This is the context in which you've been given these commandments. Okay? So if I'm there, I'm not thinking like, thanks for the commandments, God. I'm like, whoa, this is important. In chapter 19, God says, if you even come close to the mountain, I will break out against you. An animal, they're going to die. And if you come close, you're going to die too. So then how is it possible that Moses says, hey, don't fear. Don't fear the smoking, trembling, trumpet blasting, kill you if you get too close to the mountain, God. I'd be trembling and I would be afraid. But what does he say? He says it's a test. And what is the test? This is really interesting for us. That you would fear him so that you may not sin. See, we as New Covenant believers, um, I think sometimes we don't talk about this enough, and it's a disservice. And sometimes we take the teeth from the line of Judah. Sometimes we do that. Sometimes we're so quick to move to grace, and I think that we should. But sometimes we need to marinate in the fact that God is incredibly serious about his commandments. So serious that he's willing to say, guess what? You don't keep them, you don't get to be in a covenant with me anymore. And by the way, if you break them, you're going to die. And how do we know that's true? Read four chapters forward and how many people die. Because what do they do? Everything that they just covenanted that they would not do, they do. And God breaks out and he kills them. He's incredibly serious about his commandments. So I look at that now and I say, man, okay, wow. There's got to be something more to this commandment thing. What I want to uh, explain next and, and look at it is there's two ways that you can look at the commandments of God. The first is a reorientation around God's kingdom, and I covered that, but I don't think that's the most important. What I think is the most important is that we look at God's commandment, God's law, as a spiritual MRI. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's think for a second. If you go to a heart doctor, and you have a heart condition, and you talk with the doctor constantly, and everything he's been telling you hasn't really been working. He's been telling you to exercise, cholesterol's not down. He's been telling you to do all these different things. Take a walk, don't be stressed, eat fiber, whatever. It doesn't seem to be working. And so you've got in your mind an unspoken distrust for this doctor. Now all of a sudden what the doctor does, you go to the next, uh, the next appointment, and now he gives you a prescription bottle. Okay, when he gives you that prescription and you throw it in the trash, what does that out now reveal? Well, it reveals an outward disobedience and distrust in the doctor. See, this is what the law does for us. This is what the Ten Commandments are supposed to do for us. It's supposed to reveal our inward reliance on ourselves so that when we have a doctor that prescribes something for us, until he prescribes it, we're not guilty of anything. It's just, I might not trust this thing, or I might not trust this doctor, but... 
Once there is a remedy, once there is a solution, once there is a prescription, and we don't take it serious, that reveals something about us. It reveals that we rely on ourselves and that we don't believe that the doctor prescribed the right thing. There's lots of debates when you get to the New Testament. Lots of debates when you come to the New Testament about the law. You've got a group called the Pharisees. You've got a group called the Sadducees. And uh, it's important. I, I want to know, uh, and basically the answer that I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to answer for you guys is, great, Adam, the commandments are there, and you told me that there's two ways that they're, that they're to be viewed, but do I still have to follow these bad boys? You know, because I'm a New Covenant believer. Like, do they still mean something for me? And this is the part that I, I, I find really exciting. But there's this group. There's this group called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Think of them as the Republicans and the Democrats. They do not care for each other. So you see, maybe some of you do, some, but overall, maybe some don't. Matthew 22, 34 through 40. What you have here is you've got the Sadducees who have just been silenced. Jesus has just silenced them. And so now you've got the Pharisees who, by the way, were probably like, yes, Jesus got them Sadducees. Awesome. They're probably doing like a little bit of a celebration dance. And so one of them, one of them a lawyer, says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is a huge statement. It doesn't just say some of the law and the prophets, but all of the law and the prophets. That means all of the commandments and everything from verse 21 on, which is like, don't boil a goat in milk and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, some of that doesn't apply to us because we don't own goats unless you maybe live like in Rio Vista or something like that. You might own one. <clears throat> but what is this? There's a continuation. Here's the continuation I want you to see. If we were to go back and look at the first four commandments, what we would see is that these all relate to our right relationship with God. So you've got a four-six split. The first four are all about treasuring God above everything, honoring God above everything. And so we see that what Jesus is saying is he's not, he's not saying you don't, you don't have to do the commandments anymore. There's just a new way to do them. They're seen, they're seen as a right relationship with God. You've got to get the vertical right, and then you can focus on the horizontal. So the, the second six are all about our relationships with each other. But st still, Adam, what in the world is going on? You're not giving me enough to work with yet. I'm, it's coming. Here it comes. Look with me in Galatians uh, 3, 19 in the first part of A. Why then the law? This is the question. Why then the law? And I love that Galatians has it spelled out so clearly for us. It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. Now there's two ways in which you can take this to mean. You can either take it to mean that the law actually produced the transgression or that the transgression was always there and the law was put in place to punish it. You see the difference there? That the law was either put in place to produce the transgression in the first place so that there would be sin or that the sin was always there and the law was put in place to punish it. Now I think it's the former actually. And why do I think that? Look at Romans 5.20. 
It says, now the law came in to do what? Increase the trespass. Okay? Let's look at another verse. Romans 4, verse 15. For the law brings wrath. The law doesn't show the wrath that's already there. The law brings the wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. So really what's happening is before God gave these commandments to this people, they didn't know that they were guilty of anything because there wasn't any standard by which they needed to live their life. But when God gives a law, what happens immediately is that you become aware of exactly your spiritual condition. So let's do a quick test. Anybody in here, raise your hand if you've always treasured God above all things and never put anything before him. Anybody? Anybody in here ever, ever put something before God as an idol? Anybody ever murder? Don't put that down. Don't, don't, don't. Uh, We're not going to go there. Anybody ever steal 10 cents from your mom's purse? Anybody ever lie just a tad bit? Anybody ever covet your neighbor? So, you're guilty. And you wouldn't know you were guilty unless you got a law. But now that you have the law, you now become aware of your sin and transgression. Before that, if you didn't know the law, if you didn't know the word, if you didn't have that for you, you would just aim, go aimly through. So when you look at the commandments, it's actually the most loving thing that a God can do who knows the ultimate remedy. Because Jesus is coming. We know Jesus is coming. We know Jesus is a part of the plan. And so sometimes what people will tell you, and I believe that it's false, is they will say that there was a different way of salvation in the commandments. That, if you ever followed them perfectly, God would owe you salvation. And that just can't be true. That can't be true because in the flesh we never could in the first place. What it was supposed to do was show you that you're sinful. It was supposed to call you out from yourself so that you could be drawn into Jesus. That's what the law does for us. Okay, so how many of you today, when you woke up, looked in a mirror? Anybody? From the looks of it, some did, some didn't. It's okay. Now imagine your morning routine. You look in the mirror, and let's say, for instance, you're putting on makeup. Okay, how many of you actually use that mirror to put on the makeup? Now, I don't mean like you looked at it. I mean broke a piece off of it, dipped it in the blush, and put it on your face. Did anybody do that with a mirror today? When you were shaving, did you look at the mirror and break a piece off the mirror? And get, I'm using this mirror to actually accomplish this task. And how many people comb their hair with the mirror today? I guess it's nobody. My guess is you looked at the mirror for exactly what you were supposed to, to see what's in it and then respond to it. And see, sometimes we come to the law of God and we think, hmm, the law is like a mirror. Let me actually... Let's use the mirror. That's how I'm going to get to God. I'll use the mirror. But do you see how crazy that is? That can't be the case. What's supposed to happen is you're supposed to see truly how wicked you are. Now, I'm not going to offend anybody in here who who is a Christian, I don't think. You're a terrible person. Okay? You're a terrible person. How do I know that? Because I'm a stinking terrible person. Every time I'm left to my own desires unchecked, what happens? Terrible things. I'm the worst Now, the only people who are offended by that are people who have not seen themselves clearly in the law. Because what does Romans say the wages of sin is? Death. So if you see the wages of sin is death, and now the law shows you that you are utterly sinful, what must you do? Help me. I need help. 
I can't do this on my own. But what happens is people still try to subvert God's plan, and they say, well, if I just pray a little bit more, and if I just serve a little bit more, and if I just do this a little bit more, then I'll make it, and I'll just be a good person, and I'll give to the poor. What you're failing to do is to look at the mirror and be changed. You're using the mirror. Stop doing that. It's not healthy for you. Do you know what will happen? You'll be exhausted. There is no worse hobby in the world than coming to church and not having a repentant and regenerated heart. Coming every week and hearing about Jesus but not really loving him is the lamest thing you could do. It's got to be exhausting for you. It's a terrible hobby. Right? I can think of a thousand other things that would be better if you don't truly love the Lord. But if you love the Lord, man, your pants are on fire because you can't wait to say, how wonderful is his name? How strong is he is? Right? Doesn't that make sense? That's what I think the law is there for. But I want to go just a little bit further. I've got to. Galatians 3, 21 through 23. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give give life, the righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So there's an imprisonment in sin, and a captiveness, or uh, being captive under the law. Man, what is that there for? So here's in a very real sense. If you are in this room and you've become aware of your sin, and at some point in your life, if you bent your knee to Jesus, you understood how terrible you were. And it didn't come from anything else than the word of God telling you, you're a sinner. And that sin was there for a reason. It imprisoned you so that you then would look outside of yourself. You were drawn out of yourself to be drawn into Christ. That's how many of us started our journey. But there's a question for some of us in this room is, are you still imprisoned to sin? Are you still fully in Pharaoh's kingdom? When you hear me describe the difference between Pharaoh's kingdom and God's kingdom, do you line more up with that? Have you never actually taking the steps of looking in the mirror and saying, I am a detestable person who needs a Savior. Let me tell you here, brothers and sisters, there is room at the cross of Christ for you. Now, there is tons of reasons and tons of thoughts about why it couldn't be that for me, but let me tell you, grace abounds. Mercy waits at the door. If you're becoming aware of your sin right now, there's a reason that's happening so that you might look outside of yourself so that you can push into Christ. Now, there might be a second person in this room who's captive under the law. Maybe you grew up in church, and maybe you picked up all the church things that you're supposed to do. It's not the stuff that's ever taught on stage. It's all the other stuff. It's all the, all the, all the words that we say to each other. All the sort of, did you read the right book? And are you teaching your kids all of the right things? And are you doing this? And are you, it's external behavior modification. How many people are still doing that? How many of us are still captive by the law? Listen, it's exhausting. It's exhausting to be captive by the law. What did God prescribe for those to see their true identity in his commandment? Rest. Take a break from your efforts, brothers and sisters. If you are the person who is still 
captive under the law, you're still thinking that you can merit God's favor by doing enough, let me tell you that all it will do is spin you out, make you more and more tired until you eventually throw up your hands and say, that God thing wasn't for me. That's not what's supposed to happen. You're supposed to see through the law that you could never manifest it in yourself in the first place. You can never through toil of the hand, through sweat of the brow, accomplish for yourself something accomplish something for yourself that was meant to be accomplished through Jesus. So what's the answer? This is the answer, I think, found in Romans 8, 3, and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, see, the law's not the problem, our flesh is the problem, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now you've got to think, these commands that God was giving to Moses in the next couple chapters, they're eventually going to be written in stone. Now what does Jeremiah say, though? Jeremiah 31 33 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. So you see the difference. You see God has made a way that the law will be manifest in you. And you will obey it because through the spirit of God, he gives you this law or this love that fulfills the law. The New Testament says that for us. It says love is the fulfillment of the law. And when it talks about in Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, all of that. What does it say at the end? Against such things there is no law. Does that make sense? Do you know what you're supposed to do? You are supposed to cling to Jesus. You are supposed to desire Jesus. You're supposed to look to Jesus. And when sin comes in your life, you don't put your head in the sand. You say, thank you for calling me out so that I can be drawn in because I need the grace of Jesus every day. And if you find yourself playing the spiritual game and God calls you out and you look at yourself in the mirror and you do the Ten Commandment test and you realize you know you can't make it, what do you do? You go to the cross of Christ every time. Back again. Because what's there? Grace, forgiveness, mercy in spades. I'll close. Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Because you know why we got to be careful to obey his rules? The God that was terrifying, the God that shakes, the God that trumpets, the God that smoke envelops, he still takes his commandments very, very, very seriously. But amen that Christ overcame and provides the way. Let's pray. God, how good it is to dwell on your remedy. You give us a way out. You've given us a way out. And it's through seeing ourselves accurately. Thank you for the law. Because in the law we see our need for Jesus. And God, my prayer and my heart is that everyone in this room would not leave today without re-examining where are our roots? How are we trying to make it through? Are we clinging to Jesus as the remedy or are we doing it in our own efforts? 
God, I pray that in situations where there is struggle or there is sin or there is a reticence to give you all of it, Father, that you will push them to trust in God that that would happen through the Holy Spirit today. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. And thank you for saving us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.